Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Don't forget that we're going to have a business meeting after the service today uh, for church members, and so stick around. Uh, there's a couple of projects that I need to present to you and things that we have coming up that are needs, and so um, I'll do my best to present those. I have a PowerPoint so that you can see some things, and uh, so we'll, we'll do that after the afternoon service here. And then don't forget as well that there are missionary wife cards in the copy room for all you ladies to sign, and there's also a Get Well card for Brother Girth and uh, Mrs. Sims uh, on the back table to sign as well. Um, yeah, I'll address something else a little bit later. But Revelation chapter 2, and let's look at verse 8. Uh, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the, the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these, those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Last Sunday, we considered what Jesus had to say to the church in Ephesus, and Briefly this afternoon, I want to consider these verses here, what Jesus said to this church in Smyrna. And what we need to understand is, especially in verse 11, where the Bible says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Um, these specific things that Jesus Christ said to these churches also apply to you and I and our church and others of the Lord's churches. It's what the Spirit says unto the churches. And so there's application here that we should be able to draw from the, some of the things that Jesus presents to this particular church in a town or a city called Smyrna. We're going to consider this. In order to do that, again, we should look briefly at the ancient city of Smyrna itself. The Bible doesn't say anything else about this church other than what we have right here in Revelation chapter 2. Um, we don't know anything else from the Scriptures regarding this church. And so what we need to do is we also need to look at some secular sources to find out some information about it. And I'm going to read for you just some things about the city itself from some secular sources. It's easier if I just read it. And it's to create a picture for you of, of what's going on, what's happening with this church and why the Lord Jesus would say some of the things that he did, okay? What we know from the ancient city of Smyrna is that it was located about 50 miles north of Ephesus, and it's on the Aegean Sea. You can, it's a still populated city. In fact, there's about 2 million people that populate that city now, and it's, it's uh, called Izmir in Turkey. 
But let me just read for you some of the things that secular sources say about it or about it in the Lord's day or in John's day. In a pleasant, it was in a pleasant location with a prevailing gentle west wind. It had an excellent harbor that could be closed to shipping. It was one of the finest cities in the province of Asia. It was beautifully and advantageously situated. From the sea, it spread to the foothills and to Mount Pagos that was covered with temples and lovely buildings. These have been referred to as the crown of Smyrna. Aristides said that Smyrna was the most beautiful city in the world, a flower of beauty such as earth and sun had never shown to mankind. The streets were handsome, well-paved, and drawn at right angles, and the city contained several squares, porticos, public libraries, and numerous temples and other public buildings. The Golden Street that connected the temples of Zeus and Sibyl is said to have been the best in the world. It was a place of great commerce, science, medicine. It was also famous for its rhetoric and philosophy. It had many pagan temples dedicated to the gods and goddesses, including Zeus, Dionysius, and the and a goddess called the Mother of the Gods. From the time of Tiberius, there was a temple in Smyrna dedicated to Roman emperor worship. Olympic games dedicated to Zeus were held here in a magnificent 20,000-seat stadium, which was built for this particular purpose. It was also in this stadium that the Christian preacher Polycarp, who was a student of the Apostle John, was martyred in 155 A.D. It was exactly on such occasions that what the pagans regarded as the unpatriotic and antisocial spirit of the early Christians became most apparent, and it was uh, to the violent demands of the people assembled in the stadium that the Roman pro proconsul yielded up the martyrs. The city was famous for its wine and drunkenness. It was devoted to the worship of Dionysius, the god of wine and moral debauchery. A statue representing an old woman intoxicated illustrates the prevalent habits of the population. Today, the city is called Izmir. It's located in Turkey and it has a population of 2 million people. The modern city is built over the ancient one. So what we find is that in ancient times, it was a town, it was a city given to wine, to drunkenness. It was religious with the pagan gods. Uh, there was also persecution against Christian people uh, that was prevalent in this city. The ancient uh, church of Smyrna. Well, again, we read uh, what Jesus has to say in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 8 through 11 regarding this church. And I want to make specific application here just for a moment to verse 9, where Jesus says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. For more than 200 years, the churches were persecuted by the Roman Empire. Christ mentions ten days of persecution here in these verses. Well, there were ten major periods of persecution under ten principal pagan persecutors, Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Severus, Maximus, uh, Decius, Valerian, 
Aurelian and Diocletian, all of these emperors, uh, ten major uh, times of persecution against the churches. And it's interesting that Jesus says you're going to have persecution ten days. There was also a lot of poverty. And the reason for that was because during this period, the believers often had to live hand to mouth and in hiding due to the persecution. Judaism was also rampant throughout the Roman Empire, and the Jews continued to hate those who were followers of Christ and to torment them as they did even during Paul's day. It was written in church history that the Jews provided the wood to burn polycarp in Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh had to be crushed for it to emit its fragrance. And this description sets forth the period when the church was crushed beneath the iron heel of pagan Rome, and yet it never gave out such a sweet fragrance to God as in those two centuries of almost constant martyrdom. Ironside wrote that. The church of Smyrna is nowhere else mentioned in the Scripture, and so we don't know much of its history. We don't know much of its character other than what we have here in these few verses and also maybe what a few early church historians had to say. It's likely that this church that we're going to consider here was started during Paul's third missionary journey when he spent two years in nearby Ephesus. Remember that it's only 50 miles north of Ephesus. And from Ephesus, Paul had a tremendous ministry. It's likely that this church was started during that time, during the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Paul. Let's just keep your place here, but go back to Acts chapter 19 briefly. In Acts 19, this is just introductory things. We're going to look specifically at what Jesus says here in just a moment. In Acts 19, in verse 8, the Bible says, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened to believe not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. It's likely that the church in Smyrna was started during this particular period of time under Paul's ministry. And so we don't have a lot. We don't know a lot other than what we have here. But Jesus reveals to us some really important things. And there's some good applications for us here today as well. And so I want to consider some of this truth and you open up your heart to what the Lord might have for you this afternoon. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd teach us from your word. And as we make application for the, from the things that you said to this church in Smyrna, Lord, I pray that we would be, uh, as verse 11 uh, tells us, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And Lord, we can draw good application for us today in how we live our life. And Lord, even application for, for what we may possibly see in the future. And Lord, I am thankful that we can trust you, uh, just like you said to this church, or that you know, you're not unaware, you know all that's happening, 
But Lord, we can always trust you. And Lord, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts from it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, consider with me Christ's knowledge of this church. Uses the word know a lot of times in these verses. In verse 9, Jesus says, I know thy works. And that means, and he says, in tribulation and poverty. In other words, I know the works you do. I know the tribulation you're going through. I know your poverty. But thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Jesus lists a few things here. He says, I know your works. I know what's happening in this church. Uh, We're saved by grace through faith apart from works. Yes, uh, that's true. Works have nothing to do with our salvation. But we are saved unto good works. God has ordained that as God's children that we uh, 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 live a life full of good works unto the Lord. We're not saved to serve ourselves. We're not saved uh, to live life for ourselves. We're saved to serve the living God. And Jesus said, I know the work that you're doing. This was a church that was busy working. Jesus knew their works. Jesus knew their labor. He knew their toil. He saw it all. He knew what each believer was involved in and did. Now, I'm not going to expound on that or draw that point out because I think you know and you have enough sense to to understand where this could go. Jesus states to them, I know your works. And a church can be involved corporately on things, but that consists of what each individual member of a church does. And the Lord knows what you're involved in. The Lord knows what you're doing, even when nobody else does. But here's really the point. The point is, is that you and I are going to give an account for the life that we live. When we stand at the judgment seat of Christ as born-again believers, we're going to give an account for what we did with our life. Jesus already knows what's going on in our life. But at some point and at some time, we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of our work and our life at the judgment seat. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So if we go back just a little bit, Paul says regarding ministry, he says, I've planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he build thereon, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, 
precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I think you understand much of what that passage is saying. Paul makes it very clear here that every man's work is going to be tried. Every man is going to receive a reward according to his own labor. But we need to be careful about how we live our life and what we do. You can build and you can have gold, silver, and precious stones. But you could also build with wood, hay, and stubble. And the day is coming when the fire of God's judgment is going to try your life's work. And the things that, are, that will last are the, are the gold, silver, and precious stones. The wood, the hay, the stubble, it's all going to be burned up. And we're going to stand before the Lord. And, G, and Paul says you're going to suffer loss if your life's work is burned, yet you're going to be saved yet so as by fire. In other words, you're not going to lose your soul. You're in heaven, but you have nothing that your life had to show for it that you could present to Jesus Christ or crowns that you would receive that eventually you would cast at his feet. The point is it's really important for us to remember we're not saved to serve self. That's not why we are given life and breath. We're not saved to, to build up retirement incomes. It's not wrong to do that, but that should not be the thing that dominates our life. You know, your job is not your identity. It's not where we find value. Does that make sense? It really doesn't matter what you are, what you do for a living. That's not where we find value. Is it self-respecting? Well, maybe so, to make something of your life and so on, but, but all too often we get it all turned around. Like I put effort in and I got a, a, a degree and I got a career and this is, this is what gives me value because I'm a this. Does that make sense? That's not what our life consists of. It actually is no value. That's all temporal things that are going to burn up. Our value is in Christ. Our value is in the fact that He saved my soul. Our value is in the fact that He's given me purpose. My purpose is to glorify Him with my life. Now, I can do that through my job, but my job is not what gives me value or identity. Our life's work, what we do with it, is good, we're going to give an account for. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 9. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good 
or a bag. Paul reiterates the fact that our life is going to be examined and our life work is going to be judged. But notice that Paul says, because of the fact that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we labor so that we could be accepted of who? Of Him. That's what motivates me. That's what motivates what I do, Paul said, so that I could be accepted of Him. Not culture, not society, but accepted of Him. Because I'm going to stand before Him. The point is, Jesus said to the church, I know your works. I know the life that you're living. But He also said, I know your tribulation. Back in our text, in verse 8, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation. Jesus knew what they were going through. They were suffering. You remember some things we read in the introduction about the persecution from the Roman Empire. They were suffering in their existence as Christians. But you know, sometimes suffering is a necessary part of the Christian life. We don't always like it, but here's one thing that we can understand. Jesus knows about it. Jesus says, I know the tribulation that you're going through. He knew their suffering. And aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus Christ is not a Savior who is far away, who's unapproachable, who doesn't understand, but that the Word of God tells us that He's a very present help in trouble, that He's the Good Shepherd who tenderly cares for the sheep, and sometimes we will suffer, sometimes we'll experience that in life, But even in the midst of that suffering, we have to remember that we are never forsaken. We read Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 and following this morning, that He is our high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He understands what we go through. He was human like you and I. And and He says, because of that, come, come before the throne of grace to find that help in time of need. Man, what a, what a blessing to be reminded of in the middle of times that we're suffering. That He knows. Jesus said, I know what you're doing. I know what you're experiencing. And then He says, I also know your poverty. In verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and your poverty. They, these people must have been poor, else Jesus would not have said it. But you know, what is, I think I was, I was talking with Brother Chris this morning, and we were, we were praying about, we were praying about those who live in Lebanon, the, the people that Noah ministers to. And I was telling him, or we were talking about the young men. Their life is hard. And I've asked you to pray a couple of times for 
Steve. He's going through some struggles. And I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and he was just sort of laying some things out. You know, his life is hard. And on one hand, you say, well, I feel sorry, I feel bad, because our life, comparatively, we have so many more resources and opportunities, and we are rich beyond imagination compared to most people in the world. We would not call ourselves rich as we sit here today, and maybe not in comparison to some others in our country, but to the great population of the world, we are rich beyond imagination. But you know what? It is those same blessings, and we should not take them for granted. Surely we should thank the Lord, but sometimes it is those same blessings in life that make us soft. Did you know that? Sometimes it might be better for us in our Christian life to have things hard. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know what you, how you live. But you know, here's the thing. As a Christian, God has not promised us financial prosperity in this life. But yet we labor and we work to try to find that financial prosperity in this life. There's a, there's a prosperity gospel that is preached out there by the charismatics and so on. That's an unscriptural thing to be teaching and preaching. That God wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy and wise. That's not, the will, not necessarily the will of God for a person's life. In fact, we get caught up in the trap of laying up for ourselves treasures on this earth. When Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, that are incorruptible things. And the Bible tells us godliness with contentment is great gain. And Paul said to be content with such things as ye have. And it's a trap that so many Christian people fall into. And the trap comes because our focus shifts. Our focus shifts from, uh, from the eternal things to the temporal things. And we become discontent with the provision that God has already given to us. We go to seek after material gain only to find ourselves entangled with the affairs of life that hinder us from laying up treasure in heaven. You see the vicious cycle? Well, these people didn't have to worry about that, maybe, as far as earthly riches go. Because Jesus says, I know your poverty. He knew the situation they were in. But even in their poverty, Jesus Christ was with them. And he promised. Look at Psalm 23 with me. Psalm 23, verse 1. Here's a promise from the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. promise is, I shall not want. doesn't mean I'm going to be rich, but even in poverty, the Lord is my shepherd. He provides. In Psalm 37... In verse 5, listen to this. 
Psalm 37, 5, Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. You commit your way to the Lord, and you trust in the Lord, and the Lord is going to provide. The point is, God allows us sometimes to go through some very difficult situations, and maybe one of those is experience some hard financial things. Sometimes we can get ourselves into a mess. But sometimes the Lord just allows us to go through those difficult situations in order to teach us a valuable spiritual lesson and in order to teach us that it is God's will for us to live by faith and to trust in the Lord, not trust in the temporal riches. Living by faith is the only way that we can actually please the Lord. It's the only way that we can actually bear spiritual fruit to live by faith. Jesus said to this church, I know your works, I know what you're involved in, I know the persecution, I know the tribulation, and I know the poverty. They experienced poverty because of their persecution for living for Jesus Christ. In the middle of all of that, Jesus says, I know, I'm with you. His knowledge of the church. But then secondly, I want you to note his exhortation to the church because I want you to go to verse 10. So he says, I know all of these things, but now Jesus gives an exhortation. He says in verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall come or cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. What is the exhortation that Jesus gives. He first says, I know all that you're going through. But here's the instruction or the exhortation. Fear none of these things. Fear none of these tribulations. Listen, friend, that is the right attitude in the Christian life. There are all sorts of trials and tribulations in this life, but the believer need not fear any of them whether it's pain, whether it's sickness, whether it's uh, uh, the, the loss of a loved one, maybe that sickness is for yourself, maybe it's the sickness of a loved one, maybe there's some family trouble, maybe there's some persecution, maybe there's even death. He says, fear none of these things. Why? Fear is a dangerous thing that grips the heart. Fear will eventually control a person's life. The Bible says that perfect love, God's love, casteth out fear. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Fear has a way of eventually gripping and controlling a person's life. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 7, the Bible says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if fear is gripping and controlling a person's heart, that is not of God, because God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 1 John chapter 4, in verse 8, or 18 rather, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because 
Fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Fear will torment a person's life. Fear will control a person's life. And fear is the opposite of trusting in the Lord. It's the spirit of fear that controls a person. In Psalm 56, verse 11, the psalmist writes this, In God I trust, I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. It's an awesome opportunity and it's an awesome testimony to the power of trusting in God when people can live by faith and overcome fear. Regardless of what happens, the psalmist said, I will trust in God because he knows and understands the power of God. Therefore, I can trust in God. The key to overcoming fear then is trust in the Lord. Trusting God is a refusal to give in to fear. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't have moments of fear in our life. Like, and it doesn't mean that if somehow we have moments of fear that we're, that we're somehow sinning. It's not saying that at all, but it does mean that we won't give in to it. It does mean that it won't control my life because I trust in who my God is. In fact, Psalm 56 and verse 3 says, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Fear is something that is present or could be present in our life, but it should not be something that controls my life where I live in fear or the choices I make or the decisions I make or the attitudes that I present are all controlled by this thing of fear. I'm not certain I'm afraid of this. This might happen, and so therefore I respond this way. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I'm the one who was alive, who was dead, who's alive again. I know what persecution is like. Fear none of these things. It's a turning to God even in the darkest times, and trusting Him to make things right. The trust, can we just will ourselves into trusting God? Can we do that? We're just going to will myself into trusting God. Where does trust come from? Where do you, where do you get trust? Where, how, is, how is trust built in your life with people? How do you learn that I can trust you? How do I go through? How do I learn that, Jordan? In a relationship, in the time that I spend with you, and you prove it to me, and over time I know I can trust you. You know where that's going. Where's your relationship with the Lord? Where does trust come from? How can I trust the Lord? It comes from knowing God in a relationship with Him and knowing that He is always good. I trust His character. So what does that mean then when we're living in fear? What does it mean then when fear is controlling me? Or the decisions and choices I make are based in fear. What does it mean? 
well, I'm not trusting God, but also I need to work on my relationship with God. That's what it means. Because the trust comes from knowing Him. And it's not just knowing facts about Him, it's knowing Him intimately in my life, that He's good all the time. And you know what Job said? When he was experiencing some of the most difficult trials ever recorded in the Word of God, he said, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. How could he say that? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He could say it because of his relationship with him. That he's good. Even in the middle of hard things. And listen, once we've learned to put our trust in God, we'll no longer be afraid of the things that come against us. We'll no longer be afraid of the unknown of tomorrow will be like the psalmist who said with confidence in Psalm 5, in verse 11, I'll read it to you. Psalm 5, 11, he said with confidence, But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, Because thou defendest them, let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. He says, I can rejoice because God is defending me. Amen? Jesus said to the church, I know what you're going through, but don't fear any of those things. You trust in me. And then Jesus told them, at the end of verse 10, He said, you're going to have tribulation. You're even going to be put in prison. You're going to suffer. But he said, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He said, be faithful even unto death. Satan's going to cast some of you into prison. It was a prophetic statement that was being made here to this church. Maybe it was even referring to the days of Polycarp who was burned to death, who was a disciple and a student of of the Apostle John. And it would only be maybe 50 years later, maybe 60 years later that that would take place. There's a prophetic statement being made here, but Jesus says, you be faithful and you trust in in me and I'm going to give you a crown of life. Then look at verse 11, and you see Christ's final words to this church. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. He says, first of all, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Each individual person has the responsibility to hear what the Spirit of God says. This is not just listening to the Word of God, but taking heed to it and applying it in the life. We are going to answer to God for what we do with the truth that He has given to us. Then He says, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. How do we overcome? He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. How do we overcome? Is it something that we will again and by my might and by my strength, I'm going to overcome? 
We'll look at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. Let's go back a little bit. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, and they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. If we go to 1 John chapter 5, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, the Bible says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. We overcome by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, such a faith that regenerates us and produces a true testimony and perseverance in the faith. Jesus said, He that overcometh is not going to be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Well, the second death is to be cast into the lake of fire following the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 talk about that. It's the eternal punishment of the soul and body in the lake of fire. The first death is the separation of the spirit from the body. James chapter 2 and verse 26, when you die, your spirit separates from this body, and this body goes into the ground and decays. But the second death is eternal separation of the individual, of the soul, from God. And so it's imperative that each individual be certain that he is in Christ, that he has eternal life in this present world, because when you die, and if you die without salvation, there's no second chance. There's no opportunity. You remember the rich man in Luke chapter 16? The rich man died without Christ, and the Bible tells us immediately he was in hell. In hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and he was told, there's no way out of this place. Not for you. Those who are in hell are going to be raised to stand at the great white throne judgment to be judged for their works and for their sin. And then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire to be forever punished for their sin. Well, Jesus said, He that overcometh will not be hurt by the second death. This promise was especially precious to the church at Smyrna at the time they were undergoing persecution even unto the death. And the devil, through his agents, might kill their bodies. They might suffer the first death, but these martyrs would never be touched or hurt by the second death. You trust in the Lord. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty amazing. And it's a huge encouragement. Why is that an encouragement? Well, for me, it's an encouragement because, you know what, I don't know what the future holds exactly. 
But the Bible says that all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Will we see actual physical persecution in our day? I don't know. If we do, how bad will it get? I don't know. But questions like that could cause fear in a Christian's life. And it could begin to control our lives and even distract us from what we should be focused on. And Jesus gives the admonition, fear none of these things. God is in control. He's going to accomplish His purpose. You can trust Him for tomorrow and simply obey Him today. Amen? Jesus says, I know all about what's going on in your life. I'm there. Trust me. Don't fear any of these things. Don't fear tomorrow. Simply obey me today. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd encourage us. And maybe some of us need a little course correction or a little focus adjustment. Maybe our focus is too much on the temporal things of life. We're trying to gain or acquire or prepare for the future of retirements or the years of our life, the later years of our life, and so on. Maybe that's what some are really striving for. We don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. We don't know that we'll ever see those later years of life. It's not wrong to be prudent and to be wise and to even have some plans. But Lord, I pray that those temporal things would never dominate the lives that we live. And Lord, that our mental focus and our energies would be given to serving Christ, serving the Lord through His church, serving other people, that our mental energies would be given to putting effort into laying up treasure in heaven with the realization and the remembrance that we're going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to give an account for our life's work and we want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want to be able to have the gold, silver, precious stones so that when the fire tries our works, it's not burned up. We have something that lasts. We have reward. But then those rewards we cast at the Lord's feet to honor Him. Lord, help us to live with eternity in view. And Lord, maybe there's some who have the tendency to live in fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of the what if. And I just don't know, and it causes fear. It grips the heart and even controls our thinking and our actions and our responses. And Lord, help us to learn to live by faith and learn to trust you. That no matter what, Lord, you're there. You'll provide. Your grace is sufficient. 
even unto death. We're never alone. We can find the peace and the comfort in the presence of the Lord. This church was experiencing some hard things. And Jesus said, there's more to come. You're going to be suffering. You're going to have tribulation. I know the tribulation you're going through, and there's more that's coming. But don't fear these things. Trust me. Be faithful. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to receive that same admonition. In Jesus' name, amen.